This episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash best for your free audiobook download. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, On the Media, and Counterspin. Before uh, uh, MTV Movie Awards, Sasha Baron Cohen, his Bruno character, it flew over the audience when he quote unquote accidentally fell right onto Eminem's face. Okay, there you go. AKA the moment you found out which of your friends was gullible. All right. Well, guess whose ass that scene really chapped? Why did he have to show his butt? I don't get that. There's a lot of kids watching, and, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you, maybe you should have thought that through a little bit more, but we don't do that anymore. They feel the absolute need to once again cross over the line. Well, I, just, it, I just don't get it. Want, next thing you know, a guy will be straddling me. <laughs> Fairy tales can come true. It could happen to you. Fox and Friends are so upset about that stunt that Brian killed me. He's lost all control over the world around him. Things are so crazy. It's like you look up and all of a sudden you've got a man's ass in your face. It could happen. Why would MTV do something like that? My thing is that why do we feel like we have to go to the nth degree on these shows? Is it because the ratings are so bad for MTV right now? You know, I started on MTV and it makes me sick (laughs) to see how they haven't changed at all since I was there. But not at Fox and Friends. Five mornings a week, they deliver nothing but wholesome entertainment product. Like a few days after they were griping about the Bruno stunt. The long-awaited time to meet the New York Majesty captain and quarterback of the Lingerie Football League. Meet a round of applause for Crystal Gray. Right now, the girls are leading by a substantial 10 seconds. And final, the anchorman, Brian Gilmey, does the zigzag. Geraldo, have you ever seen anything like this? There's Brian Kilmeade going down on two women at once. I'm just glad there were no kids around to watch that segment at 8.48 a.m. Let's see it again in slow motion. I guess it's okay since it's a woman having a man's ass shoved in her face. The way God intended. By the way, did you catch... Geraldo's late hit in there? Brian, oh, Geraldo, Geraldo! (laughs) Ladies, I want you to listen to something carefully. When Geraldo Rivera tucks in his tie, run. Get away from the man with the mustache. He's planning on diving on you. He's signaling his inability not to attack. <laughs> Makes the monster's plight only more tragic. <laughs> Obviously, the Eminem stunt's most outspoken critic, Gretchen Carlson, was not there during the lingerie football romp. <laughs> Probably because she was too appalled to... Oh, there she is! This is one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. <laughs> 
Sasha Baron Cohen's ass in Eminem's face on MTV at 9 p.m. Disgusting! Brian Kilmeade's ass in an underdressed woman's face at 9 a.m. The best thing I've ever seen on television. <laughs> to borrow a phrase, I think it's interesting. We'll be right back. It's gonna take a little time While you're waiting like a factory line I'll ride across the park Backseat on the 79 Wasted days you come to pass But first, we're going to start with a new uh, segment that CNN has got uh, that is perfectly emblematic of the ridiculous neutrality that television is obsessed with and CNN is obsessed with and why they're getting their ass handed to them in the ratings, by the way. It is clip number one. Let's watch. Today we're introducing a new segment my next guest calls Wingnut of the Week. And because people on the far left and the far right can be equally far-fetched, we no, thought we'd bring an true. independent in to tell us more about it. Joining us is John Avalon. He's a columnist for the DailyBeast.com and author of Independent Nation. Thanks for being with us this morning. You came up with this idea in the first place. Exactly what is a wingnut in your definition? Well, a wingnut is someone on the far left wing or the far right wing of the American spectrum. These are the folks who are the professional partisans. They're the unhinged activists. The people who always try to divide us instead of unite us. And you know, in our polarized two-party system, they have a disproportionate influence on our politics. So I thought it was time to take me take the debate back, take the power back. We know the center's under attack. So with this segment, we're going to try to restore some balance. All right, well, let's get right to it. Uh, this is uh, one of the, okay, well, first of all, how do you decide who to select each week? Well, we want to be equal opportunity offenders here. Oh, of course. So we are carefully selecting one person on the left and one person on the right each week based on who's making the most news and who's making the, you know, getting the folks in crazy town chattering the most. Well, this week we went like with. how he said he carefully chooses. Right, it's very precise. He does. Precise you got to work hard to find and, and, uh, equal And, you know, numbers. this week we really went with two charter all-time Hall of Fame members of, hey, of the Wing We sure did, and let's do it. Minister to Republican Congressman Michelle Bachman, and we're going to show a picture of her right now. Um, she gets it for you on the right this week, um, making these comments. Let's listen to what she said. I find it interesting that it was back in the 1970s that the swine flu broke out then under another Democrat president, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> she went on to say, I'm not blaming them, but, you know, but I am. Makes you think. <laughs> but I am, yeah. Well, what I loved about that is such a great illustration of, of the way that the wingnuts have this impulse to blame everything bad on the world, on the opposition party. And, and you know, she's, been, she's made a name in American politics since the late innings of the 08 campaign when she said that she was concerned that candidate Obama then had un-American, anti-American views, and then called for an investigation of Congress. So she's got a long history of, of these sort of howlers. I remember when you did that story, actually, yes. Carol. All right, let's go uh, to the next one. And this is uh, the wingnut on the left, and we're talking about former Georgia representative. She was the 2008 Green Party presidential candidate, Cynthia McKinney, and you've called her out on a radio interview she did recently. Um, she called Wa Washington, D.C., by the way, a Zionist-occupied government, among other things. But in this interview, she also talked about some 9-11 conspiracy theories and compared herself 
you say to Rosa Parks. Let's listen. She couldn't find employment from any of the black institutions in Montgomery who shunned her because of the heat that came down on her because she took a stand. Well, it's no different what happened to them than what happens to me on a daily basis. Well, I, I just love this impulse on the part of some folks in the far left to always compare themselves to Rosa Parks and other civil rights leaders. There's just no sense of historic perspective. And in this interview really was a greatest hits of Cynthia McKinney. I mean, she went 9-11, derailed her campaign. And one of my personal favorites, she talked about the influence of the Israeli lobby, she said, that could be seen in the anti-Sudan votes that blew through Congress, by which I think she meant the votes against genocide in Darfur. So this is really someone who's staking out the ground on the far left. We miss her in Congress, don't we? <laughs> well, keep us uh, posted, and uh, we next week we're going to hopefully get another two good ones that you can Absolutely. Have. We want people's comments. We want this segment to be an advocate for those folks who feel angered and frustrated by the influence of the extremes on the right. Good. Okay, golly gee willikers, you're right there in the center. It's great. You don't have to make any judgment calls. You don't have to use your brain or your mind at all. You just find one on the right and one on the left, and you call it even. They're all such, it appears to me. I'm sure in real life they're not like they are on TV. But they all look like unthinking wax robots. They've got two pretty girls there, and they're like, Okay, tell us about the far left and far right. <laughs> hey, did it ever occur to anyone at CNN or anyone involved in that segment that perhaps that there is an imbalance, that there are more crazies on one side or more outrageous stories on one side than the other? Look, it could be that there's more outrageous stories on the left, but then you should cover it that way. It, it, did it occur to anyone that they're doing a fake balance here? and make it seem as if the far right and the far left are equivalent in intensity, in quantity, etc., etc.? No. They just, because God forbid they should ever take a stance on what reality is, on what the facts are. Just call it even no matter what. Cynthia McKinney. Cynthia McKinney. Does she say loony things? No question about it. But Cynthia McKinney talking about Rosa Parks could not be less relevant at this point. Who cares? All right, look, if you want to point it out, no problem, okay? You want to do a segment like that. But you got to give me the 10 crazy things that the right wing said this week. You just watch our show. I can give you 100. And you found, you stretched and you stretched and you stretched and you found one on the left, Cynthia McKinney, and then you compare it to... Michelle Bachman, who's a current United States Congresswoman, by the way, and they didn't even correct her. It, it, the swine flu in the 70s was not under Carter. It was under Gerald Ford, a Republican. I just, to, it's entirely possible that I get too worked up about it. I'm, I completely understand that. But when I watch those robots on TV and how they do not bring you the facts and that they give you a whitewashed neutrality, I, it drives me crazy because I think it is unfortunately part of what misleads the American people into thinking everything is 50-50. Ah, well, torture, not torture. 50-50. Everything's, ah, you made a country based on absolute lies or you don't invade a country based on absolute lies. We'll call it 50-50. <sighs> Give me that right-wing, left-wing segment. I can find you a couple of left-wing things, no question about it. And I could find you hundreds of right-wing lunatics every single week 
saying the most outrageous things. Now, I don't make it a secret that I love Audible.com, but even I didn't know how much I loved it until I logged into my account just the other day and found out that my first download was made in May 2005, so just over four years ago, and since then I've downloaded 75 titles. I couldn't believe it. If you had asked me to estimate how many things I'd gotten from Audible, I would have said 25. I'm not kidding. So obviously this place is something I ended up liking even more than I realized I did. They've got 60,000 titles in their library, audiobooks, premium podcasts, newspaper subscriptions, all in audio format ready to be downloaded. So what you should do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash best. You got to go to that special URL because that's how they know I sent you and get your free audiobook download and get your addiction started. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash best. I'm going to stay. Stephen Colbert of Comedy Central's Colbert Report plays the character of a narcissistic right-wing blowhard. A couple of weeks ago, when the National Organization for Marriage put out an ad warning of a looming storm of gay marriage, Colbert responded with an ad of his own. There's a storm gathering. A giant gay storm. Did you know that if all 50 states approve gay marriage, straight marriage becomes illegal? Yes, I heard that somewhere. But there is hope. Join the Colbert Coalition, a rainbow of proud people coming together in a commercial. Join us. As usual, Colbert wields satire like a blunt instrument. Or does he? National Organization for Marriage President Maggie Gallagher responded to the segment by writing, quote, I've always thought Stephen Colbert was a double agent, pretending to pretend to be a conservative to pull one over Hollywood. Now I'm sure. Ohio State University's Heather Lamar is co-author of a study that actually found most conservatives do take Colbert's fake politics at face value. You might watch that and you might think that's hilarious. He's making fun of conservatives. Look how funny that is, which is what we found for liberals. However, if you're conservative, you might look at that and say, that's hilarious. He's using comedy to expose flaws or holes in liberal thinking. So both sides basically see what they want to see. But you haven't found that conservatives watching the show are too stupid to figure out that they're being made fun of. Right. This has been misinterpreted widely, actually, in the press to date. There is no question in anyone's mind, according to our results, that conservatives, in fact, do understand that it's satire. What's going on here is that even though conservatives understand he's parroting a conservative, they believe he's truly targeting liberal thinking. What I haven't seen much of is conservatives using Colbert-style satire to poke fun at liberals. Is there such an animal out there? Well, I haven't found one yet. Most conservatives who use satire, such as talk radio show hosts Glenn Beck, sometimes Rush Limbaugh, the problem is we already know as viewers where they stand. It doesn't work the same. So until we find somebody who remains in character, remains vague, remains ambiguous, on and off camera, it will be very difficult to test these hypotheses in running in the opposite direction. So you mean it's on a technicality, the fact that he refuses to break character is what makes him a perfect Petri dish specimen for your research? 
Yes, but I think Stephen Colbert wouldn't call that a technicality. I think he would probably say that's a stroke of genius. I think this boils down to what the goal of the humorist is. Some people use satire as a means to make political statements. Other people use satire simply to entertain their audience. If Stephen Colbert's goal is simply to entertain his audience, he's extremely brilliant. He's the big tent entertainer. He's found a way to include all groups from all stripes. They can cast upon him anything they wish to see in his humor and interpret it for themselves as always making fun of someone else. In your research, you did identify one difference between conservatives and liberals and how they process Colbert, a result that has not found its way into your officially published study. Can you give me a sneak peek into what that's all about? Sure. Something that is being put out in a follow-up study is one interesting difference we did find is that the more conservative someone reported themselves to be, the more they also reported Stephen Colbert to be a credible and excellent source for political information. When we're talking about just enjoyment or humor, we don't find differences. But when we get down to sort of the brass tacks of, do you use Stephen Colbert to get political information? And when he says something political, do you find it credible and reliable? Conservatives are more likely to say yes. But doesn't that fly in the face of the rest of your findings? Doesn't that suggest that, aha, uh -huh, as much of the press has misreported your study, that right-wingers are more likely to be really, really obtuse? Well, actually, I would say it confirms our study. I guess my best analogy would be when somebody makes some caustic or dry humor joke that could be hurtful to someone else, and at the end they polish it off with a smile and, oh, I'm just kidding. And that leaves the victim of that joke and everyone else who listened to the joke in the room wondering, well, were they really kidding or was there some hidden meaning there? Were they trying to convey a message and they just used humor to do it? That is what conservatives believe is going on with Colbert. And because of that, it prompts them to do information-seeking, discussion, and more thinking about the topics he brings up. And it also allows them to perceive him as being a credible source for political information. city of Cairo. It was a speech designed to appeal to Middle Eastern moderates, but wasn't there a hidden agenda? He also decided to give 9-11 sympathizers a voice on the world stage. I'm aware that there's still some who would question or even justify the offense of 9-11. And throughout the speech, holy crap, 
Why doesn't any other news person tell us that Obama was giving voice to 9-11 sympathizers? I'm aware that there's still some who would question or even justify the offense of 9-11. But let us be clear. Al-Qaeda killed nearly 3,000 people on that day. The victims were innocent men, women, and children. These are not opinions to be debated. These are facts. Oh, that's why. Because if you play the rest of the clip, you see Obama was doing the opposite of that. <laughs> Although, in Sean's defense, if the second half of a sentence was that important, wouldn't it be in the front? <laughs> While Sean Hannity uses moral certainty to decide and then report, his cohorts have been less straightforward. Uh, it is... Um quite interesting to make a trip of such prominence and not make a trip to Israel as well. I do think it's interesting that the head of the impeachment committee is also a very good friend of Barack Obama's. I find it interesting that uh, before he's going to these nations, he's saying that America now could be considered a Muslim nation. I'm not saying your mother's a whore. <laughs> I'm just saying, isn't it interesting she has money? <laughs> and I don't really know what she does during the day. Of course, it's not just Interesting. I found it odd that President Obama failed to even mention the Muslim terror plot to blow up synagogues. I find it fascinating that uh, it's akin to Obama's upbringing, and I'm wondering what that, or if it's not It is a all. very similar background. It was curious to me. Well, I was intrigued. A curious relationship. Well, one of the things that struck me. Yes, yes. I, too, find Obama's ties to radicals engrossing, beguiling. It's all in here in my Roger's Guide to Insinuation. <laughs> At this point, we all know where Fox is coming from, but what about MSNBC? They're certainly not going to report negatively on the administration, but they also have 24 hours to kill. What would they do? Do you agree with party leader Rush Limbaugh that global warming is a fraud? Your view on Rush Limbaugh? Rush Limbaugh said yesterday that GOP shouldn't pander. The increasingly dangerous voice of Boss Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, you are un-American, you are anti-American. You have Rush Limbaugh. In Limbaugh land. Rush Limbaugh says. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Oh, psycho talk tonight. It's the drugster Rush Limbaugh. Although this is pretty serious, I think. This is pure hate speech. It's a comment that makes Limbaugh an ally of Osama bin Laden. Did you just use your psycho talk segment to accuse Limbaugh of hate speech while comparing him to Osama bin Laden? That takes balls, left-wing guy who looks a lot like Rush Limbaugh. Now... I don't even think Rush Limbaugh mentions Rush Limbaugh as much as MSNBC. So Fox uses insinuation, MSNBC uses misrepresentation, and CNN? Desperation. Tell us what you think about President Obama's speech. Uh, leave us a comment. All my blogs. Why don't you tell us what you think? Tweet us. I reporters also weighing in this morning. I'm on Twitter, finally. You can weigh in at Facebook. There you go. Facebook.com slash Josh CNN. Uh, Yolanda Collier. Wrote me that on Facebook. Now, the folks on MySpace, take a look at this. Hey, tell me what you're doing this weekend. I want to hear from you. No. Am I going to have to take out a restraining order against CNN? And by the way, why do I have to follow CNN on Twitter? If I want to follow CNN, I can follow them on CNN. <laughs> But I do want their tweets, you know, the stuff they're saying that's too ridiculous to even make it on their shows. 
Speaking of Twitter, I'm talking about Twitter. This is Time Magazine, and it's on the cover. Twitter, which I think is f fabulous, by the way. I just came back from hosting a convention. Why are you broadcasting from a nanny cam? <laughs> Mr. Sanchez, are you talking into a teddy bear's belly button? <laughs> CNN has basically given up. They've actually put the power of the news in your hands. Curious writes, uh, his speech was brilliant and thoughtful. He showed his understanding of the Muslim world. Julia, 1970 says, I think this is just awful. I check out what we got from Rusty. That a lot of you are weighing in tonight. Here's what Bugzak says. Fighting for the life of children should not include killing a doctor. Whenever I'm troubled with the difficult moral question of abortion, I think to myself, what would Bugzak say? <laughs> you know, they're not really reporting anymore. It's more like they're just hanging out with us at a slumber party, which explains CNN's new slogan. CNN, we're all like, I know. We'll be right back. But I gotta get started right away, and what I'm gonna get started with is the food fight uh, between the uh, mainstream media and Huffington Post and Nico Pitney and what ha over what happened at Barack Obama's press conference the other day. Now, the reason uh, we're gonna go into some uh, depth here on this is because it goes to show you what the presumptions of the media and the establishment is. Now, I have a couple other things to say about that, but first, man, it got ugly on Howard Kurtz's program over the weekend on CNN. Uh, Dana Milbank was there, who had criticized Nico Pitney before. Nico was there, and Nico let him have it right off the bat. So I want to show you that first. Uh, and if you like awkward and uncomfortable television, as I do, I think you'll rather enjoy this. Let's watch. Nico, I know that uh, you and uh, all across the Internet, we've been seeing a lot of reports coming directly out of Iran. Uh, I know that uh, there may actually be questions from... Uh, people in Iran who are communicating through the internet. Uh, what, do you have a question? Yeah, I, I did. But I wanted to use this opportunity to ask you a question directly from an Iranian. Under which conditions would you accept the election of Ahmadinejad? 
Nico Pena, you've said the White House notified you that you would probably get a question at the news conference. Everyone assumes that what we just saw was orchestrated. Uh, no. From beginning to end, there was no planning involved. I was the one who posted that I was going to be soliciting, or that I was soliciting questions from Iranians. I chose the question. The reason, uh, the reason President Obama made that comment is because he was trying to make a point that he was taking a question from an Iranian. And it's, it's interesting that Dana, uh, of all people, wrote this column very negatively. I mean, this is a person, Dana, who, when he had a chance to ask Obama a question, <clears throat> he approached him in the hall during the campaign and asked him not one, but multiple questions about how he looked in a bathing suit. I mean, that to me is pathetic. And I, and I, I mean, I would, you could stage manage me into that, Dana. Um, well, Nico has some, uh, evidently, some very interesting things to do. What I have never done in my life, Howie, is uh, uh, worked in collusion with an administration, whether it's this one or with another one. I believe that whether it's uh, Nico Pitney with the Huffington Post or whether it's Carl Cameron with Fox News, the White House should not be calling somebody the night before saying, we are going to call on you if you ask a question on a particular subject asked in I a was, certain but way. I was, I was Nico, the night before, sent out an email <laughs> to his colleagues, some big news. The White House called earlier this evening and asked if I could ask a question of President Obama at his press conference tomorrow on behalf of an Iranian. I'm about to post a solicitation to the blog, Facebook, Twitter, etc. It seems fairly likely that this will happen, but as they told me, it's not 100%. This is exactly, as, it's exactly as I described it. I posted initial solicitation, but when the, the White House. No. no. No, it says right here in your email that that's what you did. No, it, do, it doesn't. In fact, it's mm -hmm. exactly what I wrote in the blog. I'm about to post a solicitation to the blog, Facebook, no. Twitter, after hearing from the White Facebook, House. Facebook, Twitter, exactly. So I, I, my, my solicitation was merely over email. When I found out that the White House was going to uh, potentially take this question, I went to a Farsi language uh, social network site to uh, Twitter using a Farsi message, to Facebook. I tried to, if I was going to have that opportunity, yeah. I was going to canvas as many Iranians as possible. It, so it, it is, I mean, and you know, for, <laughs> this is someone, Dana's, you think, Dana's column. Let, let, do you think there's some jealousy involved by the media establishment in the fact that you got that very prominent second question? Oh, I mean, I think it's jealousy. I think it's hypocrisy. You know, Dana wrote a column, as his co colleague at the Washington Post, Greg Sargent, pointed out, Hailing the mission accomplished banner moment in in May 2003, wait, 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 the day I'm after. Sorry, I mean, it, it's uh, it's it's. <laughs> oh, Look, I mean, there's plenty of fiction here, but I brought some other. You know, shall we go through the record here, Nico? Go through what record? You, your your website was complaining about that I was not holding the Bush White House to account. I'd like to say that uh, here's a full list of documentation of me holding the Bush uh, White House <laughs> I don't, to account. I, well, I'm not sure where... Your colleagues at the Huffington Post. Right, Let's so pose it. Can we just pose one question, Nico? If the White House called up Fox News and said, Major Garrett, we will call on you tomorrow they if you ask a question about health care and you ask it in a certain way and request it. Would you they, say that's they okay? They say it in a certain way. See, this is, this is dishonest. And it's been, it's been dishonesty and errors from the beginning. Your initial piece on this, posted an hour before, after the press conference, had two errors, which you acknowledged to me in an email. You said you would correct them. It took seven hours. And the, sig right, and the signal is <laughs> you are very quick Look, to malign. Howie, I can't very deal quick with to malign and show, very I mean. slow to correct. All right, I'm gonna, you two are going to have to take this outside because I want to get Amanda Carpenter in. Does any of this smell like collusion to you? Well, I, I can tell you from, I hear a number of clients from the right side of the issue on this, and they say that Nico is a person who worked on Democratic campaigns, then went on to go work for the Center for American Progress, where he ran a very partisan blog called Think Progress, and then was asked by the White House to ask this question. So he's not, I mean, well, I the question was fair. I don't think you're denying that you, that you I know, have left the, the center views. 
Well, if NBC had a guy inside Iran or had a number of sources inside Iran, then I would ask NBC that question. But instead, NBC blew it and didn't have such a reporter. Because they're old and they don't know how to do these things. And they're like, oh, Facebook, Twitter, I don't know what's going on. Golden G. Willikers. The Iranian government said that NBC couldn't function inside Iran, so we didn't. Well, then you got out-hustled. And, you, and they did the job better than you did, and now you're incredibly bitter about it. Folks at Fox News, so quick to denounce dissent as unpatriotic during the George W. Bush era, have now moved to wishing another September 11th upon a country too slow to violence for their taste. Mark Howard of News Corps brings us this clip of Beck's guest, Michael Scheuer, former chief of the CIA's bin Laden tracking unit, on Beck's June 30th show. Here's Scheuer, followed by Beck. The only chance we have as a country right now is for Osama bin Laden to, de to deploy and, de and detonate a major weapon in the United States because it's going to take a grassroots, bottom-up pressure because these politicians prize their office, prize the, pra the praise of the media and the Europeans. Only, it, it's, it's an absurd situation again. Only Osama can, can execute an attack which will force Americans to demand that their government protect them effectively, consistently, and with as much violence as necessary. Which is why I was thinking this weekend that would be, the, if I were him, that would be the last thing I would do right now. In other words, the best thing for the United States, the only chance we have, as Scheuer put it, would be for thousands of Americans to be killed in their own country by Osama bin Laden. Only then would the U.S. government use violence sufficient for the taste of Beck, Scheuer, and their ilk. It's hard to imagine something more monstrous than hoping for the deaths of fellow citizens in order to force the government to cause more deaths abroad. It's also hard to imagine that if someone on the other end of the political spectrum espoused such views, they'd still have a TV show at the end of the day.
what if the Bush administration had someone who had asked them friendly questions? JR, do you remember that might have happened at all? I feel like I feel like I saw someone doing that before. I thought his name was Jeff Gannon. Let's check it out. Go ahead, Jeff. In your denunciations of the Abu Ghraib photos, you've used words like sickening, disgusting, and reprehensible. Will you have any adjectives left to adequately describe the pictures from Saddam's rape rooms and torture chambers? And will, the, will Americans ever see those images? Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, because... Go ahead, Jeff. Doesn't Joe Wilson owe the President and America an apology for his deception and his own intelligence failure? Go ahead, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, why hasn't the administration made more of the U.N. inspector's report that says Saddam Hussein was dismantling his missile and uh, WMD sites before and during the war? Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I'd like to comment on the angry mob that surrounded Karl Rove's house on Sunday. Jeff, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, with all the reaching out that's going on around here, the president said Thursday in his press conference that he was reaching out to the press corps. Why, what did he mean by that? Why would he feel the need to reach out to a group of supposedly nonpartisan people? Uh, the Welfare Reform Act comes up uh, this year for renewal. Is the president supporting efforts to insert meaningful work requirements into the bill where today there is none? Go ahead, Jeff. Since there have been so many questions about what the president was doing over 30 years ago, what is it that he did after his honorable discharge from the National Guard? Did he make speeches alongside Jane Fonda denouncing Americans' racist war in Vietnam? Did he testify before Congress that American troops committed war crimes in Vietnam? And did he throw somebody else's medals at the White House to protest the war America was still fighting? What was he doing uh, after his honorable yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Senate uh, Democratic leaders have painted a very bleak picture of uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, Harry Reid was talking about uh, soup lines, and Hillary Clinton was talking about uh, the economy being on the verge of collapse. Yet, in the same breath, they say that Social Security is rock solid and there's no crisis there. Well, how are you going to work with people who seem to have uh, divorced themselves from reality? <laughs> Did you get a load of those hard questions aimed at Bush and his press secretary? All right, look, this is a perfect example of how the right operates and the left operates and the juxtaposition. That's why we bring it to you. Uh, on the right-hand side, Jeff Gannon, the guy you just saw, was from Talon News. If you've never heard of Talon News, you're not alone because it was created right before the Bush administration or during the beginning of the Bush administration. It had no readers. They hired Jeff Gannon to be this mouthpiece that was then planted inside the White House. And then when that was discovered, you know what happened to Talon News? It folded up because there was no such thing as talent news. It was the whole point was to plant a guy who was not a reporter. Jeff Gannon has never been a reporter, didn't care about the information. In fact, we found out, of course, Jeff Gannon was a male prostitute and that he would often visit the White House. And I'm not implying here, and I know a lot of people have implied things here, but he would often visit the White House when there were not press days. So now people will say, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, who was he visiting there, what was happening? I'm not going there. What I'm saying is, They've got a guy that's going in that is so friendly with the administration that he's going in on non-press days. And you want to talk about planted questions. Were they planted questions with him on those days? Who knows? Were they planting with questions? Overall, it's obvious. You just saw the tape yourself. Every single one was a softball. How can you work with these sons of bitch Democrats? I mean, they're so divorced from reality, et cetera, et cetera. Now we go to the left-hand side, and you've got Nico Pitney from Huffington Post, who won by everyone's admission 
asked the hardest question at the press conference of a Democratic president. Number two, Huffington Post actually exists. Not only do they exist, they have a gigantic number of readers, millions of people every day, as opposed to talent news, which is nothing but a front. They're a real news organization, and in fact, they do the best job, in my opinion, of keeping Obama uh, honest and checking him on things that he's doing wrong. Not nonsense about what if he's eating his burger wrong, like Sean Hannity does, but actual things like, hey, is he doing, giving us real health care reform, or is he playing politics here and trying to trick the American people into giving them some health care reform that doesn't really get the job done? I, I don't see the right wing being intelligent and pressing on Obama nearly to the extent that Huffington Post is. But you get a sense of it here. On the left, you've got something that's substantial that's a real news organization and trying to check the president whether it's a democrat or republican on the right it's nothing but smokes and mirrors and since they do it that way since they do the plants of course they're going to want to ask questions or they think the left is doing it the same way but we're not because we actually care about the truth whereas you never gave a damn about the truth okay now dave kohler is going to come in go ahead well i'm not here to fight you for a change but I think that even you're missing the way I interpret it. The, so Obama started this press conference and clearly signaled that, okay, it was to me, I watched it, before we actually get this started, we're going to take a question from Nico Pitney reflecting the people in Iran. To me, it wasn't even part of the press conference. It, this whole debate seems off base. It was probably the wrong place to do it, but he signaled that it was theatrics or set up. I, but, and, and it seemed perfectly legitimate, maybe not at a press conference, but it was the opening of the press conference. It was fine, I thought. Well, you know, look, first they took the AP, I believe, so it was a second question. So it's, And then they took a number of other questions, and Obama had a prepared speech. And so, you know, I could see people saying, yeah, it's part of the regular press conference. Now, the other thing is, I just don't understand the controversy. And the fact that there's a controversy drives me crazy, because then people have to have a discussion about, hey, what's this side and what's that side? And was it theatrics or was it not theatrics? Nobody else ha was communicating with Iran. Here's a guy who busted his ass, again, by everyone's admission, to get connection within Iran, to do the best reporting that he could. So would Obama have asked NBC or CBS or ABC the question if they had contacts inside Iran? Of course! The point wasn't Nico Pitney. The point wasn't Huffington Post. The point was, hey, can I get a question from Iran and answer that in my press conference? I, I find it to be only the most logical thing in the whole wide world. But here, it's not even the right wing that's drumming this up as much as it is the press. Because the, the, the media is the establishment. I mean, it's taken me, even me, a long, long time to understand that. A interesting note here uh, on a Washington Post story. Uh, and, and Ryan Grimm, who's written a book about this, who, funny enough, coincidentally happens to also work for Huffington Post, but in this context, he wrote it in a magazine called The Root, talked about how the San Jose Mercury News had broken a story about how the Contras, with the aid of the CIA, were selling drugs and using that to fund their uh, fight uh, inside Nicaragua, and that the drugs were going into Los Angeles and then throughout the country. Now, what was the reaction to that story? Washington Post, New York Times, every other, well, one other major newspaper, but mainly the Washington Post, they wrote this enormous story about saying, oh, what a crackpot this guy is with 
journalism web character who wrote this story for the San Jose Mercury News. The Contras aren't selling anything. Come on with the CIA. Now, what we find out today is, yes, they were. And not only do we know that they were, it turns out the Washington Post had a reporter inside Nicaragua who was telling them, this story is totally true. I've gone and talked to all my sources. The Contras are selling cocaine, and the CIA is helping them. And what did the Washington Post do, and what I'd complain about throughout all the Bush years? They literally put that on page A18. They edited, 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 squeeze it down to a little story, put it on A18. On the main page, they put out this huge expose about what a liar the reporter from the San Jose Mercury News was and how ridiculous the black community in America was for thinking that the CIA might be helping the Contras bring drugs into the country. Okay? So, and by the way, then we find out, guess who wrote uh, one of the major stories for the Washington Post? Their old school Walter Pincus established. I mean, here's a guy you could trust, Walter Pincus. You know what Walter Pincus used to do early in his career? Work for the CIA. They got a guy who used to work for the CIA writing a story about, hey, don't worry, trust the CIA, even though our guy in Nicaragua, we know and we're burying, actually confirmed this story. So why? 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 Because it's the same thing, whether it's this Nico Pitney uh, controversy nonsense or this uh, old school story from San Jose Mercury News, and, which, by the way, they fired the guy. They, they eventually got rid of the guy who was absolutely right on that story, and to this day, every major piece of uh, piece that writes about that, article that writes about that story, says, oh, his discredited story, even though everyone now admits he was absolutely right. Okay, why do they do this? Because their job, unfortunately, in their mind, even though they would never say this, they, you know, they say, oh, our job is to, uh, you know, question power. No, their job, unfortunately, is to protect power. They are part of the establishment. These guys, look, when, so, but when you say, wait a minute, now I say it, but, but didn't the Washington Post take down uh, Nixon during Watergate? But remember what Nixon was doing. He was challenging all the other parts of the establishment, the press, the Democrats, the government, and wanted to gain control over all of them. So they took his ass down because he went after the establishment. Uh, but if you... If you're challenging from the outside, these old guys, I mean, look, another guy we had on the show, David Ignatius, works for the Washington Post, has done all these books on the CIA. He's very close to the CIA. These guys aren't the guys that challenge the government. They're the ones that protect the government in 18 different ways. So spare me about how Nico Pitney asked the question that the president knew was coming in a, not the actual question, but that he knew was coming from Iran. So what when you've been protecting presidents, Republican and Democratic, for what, the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years? All you've been doing is covering a blanket for their ass. Now you're telling me about how you know how to question power. My ass you do. So, look, there are good reporters in those places, and sometimes they bring you excellent stories. But their editors are the establishment. They're not looking to question the establishment. Pardon me, everyone, and let me just expound for a moment on the virtues and benefits of a Best of the Left membership. First of all, it's the members that are helping to support this show and keeping it going strong twice a week. Without their support, the production schedule would absolutely have to be cut back. So you have those to thank who are willing to pay as little as $5 a month for the sheer volume of content that you're receiving in the podcast. 
On top of that, members also receive the Best of the Left Raw feed. This feed contains all of the clips that end up in the show, as well as some that don't make the final cut, and those clips that originally come from television or some other video source are delivered in their original video format. To become a member, simply go to the website at bestoftheleft.com and click the membership tab. Thanks so much for your support. Fox News' O'Reilly Factor has many claims to fame, among them its notorious ambush interviews. That's when a young producer stalks someone who has refused to come on the show, though some victims say they were never asked, and then descends on him in a semi-public place with a camera crew. Recently, some media watchers have noticed a surprising trend among O'Reilly's targets. They're all pretty obscure. Writing in the New York Times, Brian Stelter named a few of the relatively small fish that have been caught recently in O'Reilly's net. There was Mike Hoyt, editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, Circulation 20,000. There was Hendrik Hertzberg, a New Yorker staff writer who's not quite a household name. And then there was the ambush of a relatively unknown blogger named Amanda Turkle. Did you actually ever hear the Radio Factor segment in question? Yes. So what was the Mel Gibson component to Bill's analysis? I don't believe I highlighted the Mel Gibson component. Do you know what the Mel Gibson component was? No. Why not? Because I didn't highlight it. Because you didn't hear it, did you? Because you're just dishonest. But if today the O'Reilly factor can lay claim to the title of Ambush Central, it certainly didn't invent the technique. For that, most people put the credit, or perhaps the blame, on CBS's 60 Minutes, and specifically... Mike Wallace. Well, Come on out. No, just, just, you don't want to talk to me? Why are you so reluctant? Why are you so reluctant? You've got to get over here, Mike. You want to just get right over here? I don't understand. They must be ashamed of something. According to John Cook, investigations editor for the media gossip site Gawker, there is a significant difference between today's ambushes and the ambushes of yore. The classic ambush style, usually there was some kind of public issue at stake. For instance, when Mike Wallace was going after someone who's renting an apartment and they're discriminating against African-Americans, there's something of consequence at stake. And many of the ambushes that Jesse Waters has done for Bill O'Reilly are really about sort of carrying out Bill O'Reilly's personal vendettas against people who wrote things about him that he didn't like. And also, when 60 Minutes does it, they actually try to get the person under civilized circumstances to speak to them. They actually try to interview them. Hendrik Hertzberg of The New Yorker and Amanda Turkle of Think Progress say they never had any idea that Bill O'Reilly wanted to talk to them. So let's hear what that sounds like. So after he refused to come on The Factor, we sent Jeff C. Waters out to see him. Are you going to apologize to Mr. Gingrich? <laughs> no. Are you going to apologize to me? For what? <laughs> for, for, uh, for invading my... Uh pleasant morning. So what's gained by this kind of confrontation if you're Fox News Channel? Well, the theater is great, especially for Fox's audience to have some egghead liberal caught unawares and looking freaked out and frightened and confronted with the righteous ideas of Bill O'Reilly through his messenger, Jesse Waters. So it makes for great television. And it made for great television when Mike Wallace was doing it and when other people do it as well. And that's one of the reasons anybody does these things. Now, this technique can only work, and the theater only works properly, if the ambusher has the presumed moral authority in the confrontation, as Mike Wallace did. By the time he shows up, you've already seen how bad 
the bad guy is who's been avoiding him. When Jesse Waters bothers Amanda Turkle on vacation or whatever, does he have that kind of audience sympathy, even Bill O'Reilly's audience? I think he does or they wouldn't do it. I think, by and large, with Bill O'Reilly's audience, there's a deliberate attempt to create heroes and villains or whatever, patriots and pinheads, as Bill O'Reilly puts it. I know in Amanda Turkle's case, and if memory serves, in Hendrik Hertzberg's case as well, it wasn't the first time that they had been mentioned on the show. They mentioned them over a period of days, and then there's this confrontation. And I think that's sort of getting the audience used to the idea of these people as enemies of Bill O'Reilly, as liars, as people who are spreading mistruths about him and he's going to go out there and set things straight. All right, so you decided to give Jesse Waters a taste of his own medicine. How did you go about doing that? (laughs) Well, it started because after the Amanda Turkle ambush, that got a lot of publicity and there was a lot of interest in this, and the New York Times did a story on Jesse Waters and Bill O'Reilly's ambush interviews, and there was something in there that leapt out at me, which was Jesse Waters declined repeated requests for an interview for this story, which I found obviously odd given that part of his job is to force other people to answer questions for Bill O'Reilly, irrespective of well, their desires. Well, you didn't find it odd. You found it hypocritical and predictable and just absolutely delicious. Well, so. well no, but I, I would say actually that I would think that if Jesse Waters sort of had his head screwed on straight, he would realize that the smartest thing he could do is just openly answer questions about it and try to inoculate the issue, whether it's to the New York Times or to us. But you're right. It presented an opportunity. So we decided we had some questions for Jesse Waters. So we drove out to his house at six o'clock in the morning with a video camera and waited for him to leave. And I consider it ungentlemanly to sneak up on someone the way he does. So we came up with an idea where we would be out there and at seven o'clock in the morning, we posted to Gawker a photograph of me outside Jesse's house saying, we're here, we'd like to talk to you. And we have a pretty reasonable assurance that someone within Fox would see that because I know the Fox publicity people read Gawker fairly religiously and they've emailed me within seconds of things that I've posted going up. So we had a pretty good idea that he would be aware. So we waited for him and he dodged us that morning because we're pretty much amateurs and (laughs) and we didn't anticipate the urgent need for a bathroom break. (laughs) I'm sure that's something that Jesse figured out long ago in his career of ambushes for newbies. Two words for future reference. Tag team, okay? (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so the gag is pretty funny, but I'm just curious, how far into Jesse Waters' personal life are you willing to intrude to pay off this joke? One of the ambushes that Jesse did was a guy named Bill Arkin, who's a columnist for the Washington Post's website and also an analyst for NBC News, and he had written something that Bill O'Reilly didn't like, and Jesse wound up tailing him for about an hour and a half across state lines. And when he found Bill Arkin and approached him, he was on some kind of family outing with young children. And Jesse walked right up to him and stuck a microphone in his face. That was pretty objectionable to me. It's clear from Jesse's M.O. that that's deliberate. They don't get them when they're coming out of the car at their house because they can go back in. They wait for them to get in the car and then drive somewhere. And they get them in a public space where they're unable to escape. And most flummoxed? Yeah, especially if you're not someone who's accustomed to that kind of attention. And that's why they do it that way. So I'm not going to go on his property, but if and when we get him, we have to do it in a public place where he's out with his wife or something having dinner, you know, if that's what it takes. 
I don't see any real barriers for me to doing that. That's John Cook of Gawker. He decided to have another go at ambushing Jesse Waters, so we sent OTM producer PJ Vote to go along for the ride. Okay, PJ, what happened? Well, uh, we got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and we drove from Brooklyn. It was me, John Cook, and Gawker's video guy, Richard Blakely. I actually recorded it, so I can let John set the scene. We're in Huntington, New York, and we're parked outside Jesse Waters' house. It's... 7.17 a.m. on a Saturday, and Jesse's car is here, and his garage door is open, which is a very encouraging sign. When we first got there, we were really excited because the garage door was open. So we immediately had this theory that Jesse and his wife, Noel, that they'd left it open because they were packing the car or something, and they were going to come out any minute. And we sat there for almost three more hours. We were in this big black SUV with tinted windows, which John had rented because he thought it was less conspicuous than his regular car. About 9.45, the garage door started to roll down. And a couple seconds after that, you can hear Richard, the video guy, and he's really worried that she's going to see us. And John's whispering and trying to convince him that we're safe because there's these tinted windows on our SUV. There's, it's Noel. It's Noel. Window. Don't worry, it's, it's tinted, she won't be able to stand. She's coming by, she's coming by. Oh my god, she's gonna walk right by. Okay, so you're staking out somebody's house in this gigantic SUV with the tinted windows. How are you feeling at this point? Unbelievably excited. The thing I learned about ambush interviews working on this piece is whether or not they're good journalism, they're extremely, extremely fun. Um, and then like a minute after that, after Noel had come out, the garage door rolls back up and Jesse Waters himself comes out and then all hell broke loose. <laughs> In this next piece of tape, if you listen, you can hear John say, oh, bleep, sorry. That was us getting tangled up in each other as we sort of fell out of the car and him slamming the car door on me. It's Jesse. Oh my God. Let's go. Wait, all right, wait, let me get my. Just go, 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 go. Here you go. Go, go, go. I'm ready. Oh, sorry. sorry. John Cook from Gawker, how are you? Mind if we ask you some questions? How are you guys doing? Not bad. How about yourself? Not bad. Do you like stalking people? I know, Al. You mind if we ask you some questions? Why won't you answer our questions? Are you scared to answer questions? Can we use your bathroom? There ends my stalking adventure. Okay, so you guys are kind of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. <laughs> After sitting there for five hours, you can't get out of the car, and <laughs> he gets away. <laughs> yeah, well, John considered it a success because he felt like he made his point. I think the first thing that it's worth noting is that he broke or at least bent two of the ground rules that he laid down in his interview with you. We didn't post a picture on Gawker, sort of warning that we were outside. And when we did ambush him, we ended up cutting across his property, which uh, John had said he was reluctant to do. Also, by the time we got there, Jesse was just totally laughing at us. He saw us fall out of the car. So I'm not sure the operation totally <laughs> succeeded. <laughs> I got to ask you this, PJ. You're doing this story because the presumption is that the Fox News Channel style of ambush is gratuitous and sleazy. And yet you confessed that you were very excited about the whole thing. How do you square this circle? Oh, I don't know. I kept, when we were on our way up there, I kept trying to interview John and I kept asking him some variation on the question. Did he worry that he was like the rogue cop who had broken so many rules chasing the criminal that he'd become the criminal? 
and he didn't feel like he had, but honestly, I, I think we tiptoed over to the dark side. All right, Petre. Well, welcome back to the side of good. Thanks, Bob. He was watching the Glenn Beck show on Fox. And um, he was talking with some former CIA analyst about how this administration is failing to protect the country from terrorists. And, and uh, well, then I heard something so crazy that I nearly fell off my ladder. The only chance we have as a country right now is for Osama bin Laden to, de to deploy and, de and detonate a major weapon in the United States. Only Osama. Can, can execute an attack which will force Americans to demand that their government protect them. What the f is that? <laughs> and by the way, here's the fascinating thing about our culture. Uh, my guess is you didn't hear me say f <laughs> because the federal government is protecting you and your children's ears from that type of profanity while Santa's evil twin <laughs> Gets to, uh, gets to nonchalantly propose needless slaughter of Americans for the purpose of furthering his national security plan. But uh, obviously in this country, everyone's entitled to their dope opinion. Uh, fortunately, there's a real patriot sitting next to this jerk that can admonish him for suggesting we need bin Laden to kill more Americans. Only Osama can, can execute an attack which will force Americans to demand that their government protect them effectively, consistently, and with as much violence as necessary. Which is why I was thinking this weekend that would be the, if I were him, that would be the last thing I would do right now. Yeah, Bin Laden, he always disappoints. <laughs> when you don't want him to kill Americans, he does, and when you want him to, he doesn't. He's a real dick. <laughs> Wonder if that got through. I don't know. Well, let's hope we can trick him. And when he does detonate a weapon in America, I hope it's not one of the good, real parts. All right. Hey, is there any way you can yell loud enough into your TV at home for the people inside it to hear you? Because I tried real hard last night. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. So do you remember, it was a week ago, so it was two shows back, that I first talked about the idea of spreading word of the show by contacting 
liberal or progressive or democratic organizations and just mentioning that, hey, you guys might be interested in checking out this show and you pass it on to your members, that sort of thing. Well, I think that that may end up being the best idea I've ever had for helping to spread word of the show. And frankly, that would be really fitting because it wasn't actually my idea. A new friend came up with that idea, a listener interested in helping to promote the show suggested that, and I, I just really think that that is incredibly promising. So, first of all, the concept is, to help spread the word of the show, I need your help, basically. I mean, that's, that's obvious. I, I can't do it all on my own. There's lots of you, one of me. So if you can take just a few minutes to contact liberal organizations in your area and just, you know, contact the president or the founder or the, you know, whoever the contact person is for the group and use your imagination. The drinking liberally is, uh, they're the ones that started it, but they have a whole set of groups, you know, uh, dining liberally, screening liberally where they watch movies. P liberal people are doing all kinds of things together. And you can find contact information for all of these chapters all across the country in all of these categories. We should be contacting all of them, local democratic clubs. In fact, I just had a, a person contacted, contact me. They were from uh, just a local town here uh, by D.C. They were the Bethesda Democratic Breakfast Club. And... I thought, this is perfect. I'll tell them all about the show. And then it turned out that they were contacting me on my business email address, asking for stuff about climate change and, and all that kind of stuff. So I decided it would be like mildly unethical to immediately respond and pitch my own totally non-climate change related stuff to them. But uh, that's who I'm talking about. So, you know, your little club, and, and he said, J just as I predicted, he said they have about 25 members who show up and have breakfast together and talk about being Democrats. And boy, if that is not the exact kind of person who needs to be informed of my show and given all the necessary materials to spread around the information to their, uh, you know, 25 members. So anyways, all, you know, these kind of groups, Democratic groups, uh, college groups, think about that college Democrats, college whatever, um, who meet all the time, college environmental groups, all these kind of kids. We should be contacting them all. So, first of all, if you're interested in doing that, please, 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 by all means, just dive right in and uh, start spreading the word. Beyond that, if you're interested in doing it in a organized way, you want to, like, donate some time to the show, um, and be in contact with me, I'm going to be looking at organizing people to help spread the word, in, in probably in this and other ways. So if you are interested in being one of my go-to people to uh, help spread the word of the show, either by direct email to groups like this or online in various other ways, including ways we probably haven't even thought of yet, just drop me a line, j at bestoftheleft.com, and we're going to be organizing that very soon.
So I'm really excited about this. I, I really think that we're going to be planting the seeds of the show in all these groups and they will grow into trees of listeners that'll be dropping acorns of support or something like that. Anyways, you, you get the idea. You absolutely can't deny that this is a great idea. If you like the show, you like the content of the show, and you think more people should be exposed to it, take uh, five or ten minutes and send some emails to groups like this that I'm describing in your area, and it'll make a gigantic difference. I am utterly convinced of that. So that is it for today. To stay more personally connected to us, what you're going to want to do is follow us on Twitter or Facebook, as well as subscribing to our newsletter. You can support the show with reviews in iTunes, which are incredibly important. We appreciate every single one of those, as well as voting for us every month at Podcast Alley. Links for all those are at the website. If you're interested in listening to the show on your smartphone without having to sync it with your computer, find out how to do that at stitcher.com. And for more information, visit the show notes on the blog to find all the links to the sources and all the music that I used in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members of the show, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right, pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not a